Okay, so my um, intention this evening is to do three things. Firstly, to uh, talk a little bit about these verses in the context of the book of Acts, how they work, how they function there, what they bring to the party um, in terms of Luke's telling of the story of the early church. Then I want us to zoom in a little bit and think about, actually, what is it that Peter is saying to these people as they come to him, cut to the heart and really conscious of their sin? What is it that Peter is saying? We're going to look at the two conditions and the two blessings that he sets out in the context uh, of making his gospel appeal. And then thirdly, we're going to look, at a little bit, look a little bit at how does Peter deliver his message and are there lessons that we can pick up for ourselves today? Um, I'm going to argue that there are because otherwise that would be a terrible, terrible point to make. Um, so that is, that is where we're going. So firstly, where are we in Acts? We're in an absolutely critical point in the story of Acts. I know Acts has barely got going um, at this stage. This is only, after all, the second chapter, although admittedly it is quite a long one. But this is a critical juncture. You will have seen uh, right at the beginning of Acts that Luke is writing this book to tell us what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. It is the follow-up to Luke's gospel, which told us what Jesus began to do when he was here ministering on earth. And one of the things that Jesus is going to do now that he is risen and ascended and exalted to God's right hand, is he is going to call more people to himself. And this here in Acts 2 is the first point where the risen King Jesus calls people who were not his followers during his earthly ministry and brings them into his people. That makes it critical. This is the point which decides, is this Christian thing going to carry on now that Jesus is not on the scene? Or is it going to wither away? Is it just going to be a sort of private club for the people who knew Jesus when he was alive? Or is it going to go public? Is it going to go out there? Is it going to grow and continue? All of that is going to be decided in these few verses in Acts chapter 2. And in some ways that sets up a paradigm for the rest of the book. How will the gospel go out? How will King Jesus, now that he is risen and exalted, now that he has ascended into heaven, how will he bring people to himself? How will he continue to show his rule in the world? And these few verses show us something of that. In a way, they set up the model for the rest of the book of Acts and for the rest of church history as to what it looks like when Jesus brings people to know him. These few verses are also absolutely crucial within Acts for our understanding of the restoration of Israel. Um, you may remember back in chapter 1, after Jesus had taught for 40 days with his disciples about the kingdom of God, the question that they asked him was, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer is to say, you don't need to know that, but you are going to be my witnesses. How is it that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom through his witnesses? And we start to see that happening in Acts chapter 2. So this is massive. This is an absolutely crucial turning point in the history of the church. This is, if you like, where we get off the marks. 
So I'm quite excited about that. It might not be. That's fine. Um, let's look a little bit at what actually happens here. Now, the setup is this. Peter has presented them with a pretty hard-hitting sermon. Um, amongst other things, he makes it very clear by addressing them personally and telling them that they crucified Jesus, the Lord and Messiah. Now, he's not um, speaking in kind of metaphorical terms exclusively there. It's quite likely that some of these people standing here listening to Peter were also involved in the events of Passover when Jesus was delivered up. People came from all over the world for the festival season in Jerusalem. It's a long way to come. If you're there for Passover, you may as well stay till Pentecost. So there are probably some people who were there. And Peter addresses them very directly. And we're told they're cut to the heart. They feel it. Um, it is guilt, shame, a realization that what Peter has said is true, and they have betrayed their only hope. The hope of Israel, they crucified. They're cut to the heart. It's a, a fantastic expression, isn't it? That it just captures that feeling of guilt. What are we going to do? What are we going to do now? You've got to put yourself into a Jewish mindset. For centuries we've been waiting for the Messiah to deliver us. For centuries we've been waiting for God to intervene through his Messiah to rescue us. And now Peter has just told you, the Messiah came. You handed him over to the Gentiles so that he could be crucified. That's going to rock your world, isn't it? What are we going to do, they ask. And so, of course, they turn to Peter and the other apostles, who are the only people on the scene who seem maybe to have some answers. And Peter gives them two conditions and two blessings. Two conditions and two blessings. Two things they must do and two things that will be given to them. What must they do? They must repent and they must be baptised. Now, as you go through Acts, actually there are three things that crop up around the point of conversion. When people become Christians, they're said to repent, to believe or to exercise faith, and to be baptised. Sometimes only one of them is mentioned, sometimes two of them are mentioned. Probably we should assume that the three of them always go together, as far as Luke is concerned. Repentance, faith, baptism. Here he stresses repentance rather than faith. But actually, as we see through his story... Repentance and faith are two sides of the same thing. Repentance is turning away from an old, dead, sinful life. Faith is embracing a new, forgiven life in Christ. So where there is repentance, real repentance, there must be faith. Where there is real faith, there must be repentance. You can't, I can't face, I can't turn away from this wall without turning to face another wall. It's not possible. With me? Repentance and faith. And then there's baptism. Why baptism? I think we um, get a bit het up about baptism, and that's partly because in the church there are lots of disagreements about who should be baptized, when should they be baptized, how should we baptize them, how much water should we use, what temperature should the water be, is it better to do it outside or indoors, um, all, all sorts of um, 
some serious and some fairly silly questions. But the key thing about baptism in the New Testament is that it is an identification with Jesus. It is going down into the waters of death and burial as Jesus went down into the grave and being drawn out of the water into new life. And so baptism is, if you like, the public component of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is what happens in my heart. Baptism is the public act which shows that. As I say, yes, I identify with Jesus who died and rose. And that means that I too have died and risen. I've turned away from my old life and embraced a new life in Christ. So repentance and baptism are necessary because they show that we accept what Jesus has done. These people have to say, yes, I will identify myself with this Jesus, this Messiah, as the one who died and rose for me, so that I could turn away from my old life and begin a new life. And for those who do repent and are baptised, Peter offers two gospel blessings. These are the best things, the very best things, that are on offer anywhere at all in the entire universe. Joe. He, uh, he offers them forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I just want to take a moment to unpack those things because particularly if you are a Christian who has been in church for a long time, those are words which uh, run off you probably the way water runs off a duck. Forgiveness of sins, yeah, we know about that. Gift of the Holy Spirit, yeah, got that. You got anything new and interesting to tell me? No, just the same old things. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins means the stuff that I have done wrong, the stuff that I have messed up in, the stuff that makes me feel guilty, the stuff that makes me less than I ought to be, is thoroughly in the past completely done away with, wiped out in God's mind. And God knows, right? God knows if I am guilty or not. And if God says I am not guilty, I am not guilty. Forgiveness of sins is the covering up of every source of shame in my life by God himself in a way that really works to all eternity. Just think a minute about who it is Peter is talking to. He has just said, you crucified the Lord and Christ. And maybe some of them could remember shouting, crucify him. And then he says, I'm offering you forgiveness of sins. 
Wouldn't it live with you if you had been in that crowd that shouted for the crucifixion of Jesus? But Peter says, forgiveness of sins. Blot it out. Whatever you have done. This is total, always and forever cleansing of sin. That is what is on offer. I think that's great, he said, with a little bit of understatement. I think that's great because I've sinned today, and I sinned yesterday, and I sinned the day before that, and goodness knows I'll probably sin tomorrow. Like, my track record is more or less 100%, so I'm expecting it. And to know that forgiveness of sins is on offer. Real forgiveness. Not that thing that I do where um, I just hope that as my sin recedes into the past, it becomes more ser- uh, less serious and I don't need to worry about it anymore. I don't know if you um, do that, if you're anything at all like me. I assume that uh, I've sinned today, um, so I'd better not go to God and pray today. Uh, tomorrow, hopefully, everything will be sorted out, and he'll probably have forgotten it. But the good news of Jesus is, if I'm somebody who is trusting in Christ, he's forgotten it already. It's in the past, always in the past, always locked away in a place that is no longer remembered, never to be opened, never to be looked at again. My sin is gone. It's all right, isn't it? And then there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me be honest. I could talk to you or at you, let's face it, you're just sad victims who have to sit there while I continue chattering on. I could talk to you for a long time about the forgiveness of sins. Um, As somebody who has some experience of both being a sinner and being forgiven, that is something that I could talk about for, for ages. I'm fairly enthusiastic about it. I want to be, and I long to be, as knowledgeable and as enthusiastic about the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wish I could talk to you for hours about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me be entirely honest and entirely personal with you. I don't know as much about the gift of the Holy Spirit as I feel I would like to and as I ought to. And I fairly strongly suspect that that is a failing of our church and perhaps of churches in the West generally. We love to talk about the forgiveness of sins. It's important to us. We're not really sure what to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sad times. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit is what drives the story of Acts forwards. The gift of the Holy Spirit is what makes God's people God's people. Let me just um, try and tie together these conditions and blessings for you and show you what I mean. If repentance is turning away from my old life, that's the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? The forgiveness of sins is necessary for that because it's no good me just turning away from my old life if my old life just continues following me around like this big trailer full of sin. Forgiveness of sins is necessary for repentance to be worthwhile. 
But then the gift of the Holy Spirit is about what happens next. Now what do I do? My sins are forgiven. Now what do I do? And the answer is the Holy Spirit comes and enables us to live for Christ. A really helpful way, I think, to view these conditions and blessings is to think, this is all about tying us to the Lord Jesus. He died and rose. As we go through baptism, as a public expression of our repentance and our faith, it is like we died and rose. See, I put the little word like in there. I'm not happy with that. Because that's not the way scripture talks about it. It says, you did die and rise. Your old life is gone. This is new. And Jesus himself has been vindicated. They said he was a sinner and he bore the sins of the world. But God raised him up, showing that he was righteous, in the right with God, good, perfect, and holy. He has vindication covering the doing away of sin. And as I am tied to him, my sin drops away. And he has the Holy Spirit. Peter said it in his sermon earlier on in the chapter. Da-da-da-da-da, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. These blessings, forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, are Jesus' blessings. And through repentance and faith, Through baptism, I am joined to him, and they are given to me. I am covered by his righteousness. I am given his new resurrection life to live by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's all right. Whatever. Can I just suggest one thing? And I know I was going to aim for shorter than normal. That's not going to happen. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. It might matter to you. I think one of the reasons we're stronger on the idea of the forgiveness of sins than we are on the gift of the Holy Spirit is this. The forgiveness of sins is something I basically have to get into my head. God says your sins are forgiven. I need to get it into my head and believe it. I need to believe it. Every time I sin, I need to believe. God says your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is about truth, broadly speaking. The gift of the Holy Spirit is about reality. How does that truth work itself out in my life? How does it change and transform me and give me power to live for Jesus? And I think one of the things you notice as you read through Acts is that we lack so much of that reality, that real experience of God at work. And there's nothing I can do to drum that up. If I find myself doubting the forgiveness of sins, I can go back into the word and think myself back into the right frame of mind because God has said it and all I have to do is accept it. If I find myself short on the power of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of his presence, the ability to live for Christ, I can't make anything happen. All I can do is throw myself at God's mercy and say, give me your spirit, please. And I suspect that that is where we need to be, many of us, as individuals and as a church.
that was um, something of a digression and may or may not be relevant to you, depending on whether you have the same spiritual issues that I do. You might be fine. I'm not. Finally, and very briefly, I want to talk a little bit about how Peter delivers this message. Just these, uh, these last couple of verses that we read. With many other words, with many other words, this is my justification for rambling on, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. A couple of things about Peter's address. He is urgent. He warned them. He's very specific to a point which we would call judgmental. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He's very passionate. He pleaded with them. He put his heart into this. It mattered to him and to them that they respond appropriately. I don't know about you, um, my experience of trying to introduce others to Christ includes very little warning and very little pleading. On the whole, I try to frame my evangelism as a polite conversation because that is where I am most comfortable and that, I suspect, is where my uh, listeners are most comfortable. But this matters. It is urgent. Where is our sense that we must encourage people to save themselves from this corrupt generation by turning to Christ and clinging to him. Where's the pleading? It's a rebuke to me. I think it's because I don't understand or believe either how good the gospel is, how wonderful it is to have forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit, or how bad it is to be without those things. What are we going to do as we close? Brothers, what shall we do? One thing, and probably the most important thing that I could suggest is this. Let's get into the gospel more. Let's delight in what Jesus has done for us more. Let's get the forgiveness of sins into our heads and our hearts more than it currently is. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to shape our lives. Because I think it is then and only then that we will be able genuinely to go out to those who do not yet know Christ and plead with them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. We don't have the power, we don't have the passion. But the promise of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit will come to us and enable us to witness to Christ as we trust in him, as we look to him.